0: All right, well, up to this point in the book of Exodus, what we have seen is God on a mission to make himself known. He's been on a mission to reveal himself. And so the book begins with God's people in Egypt. They think they've been abandoned and forsaken, but yet God, all along, has been blessing them. And God hears their cry and He remembers, meaning He sets in motion a plan to act in fulfillment of His covenant promised to Abraham. And of course, He sends Moses, who's an outcast, He sends Moses back to Egypt on a mission. A mission to represent Him before Pharaoh and before the people of Israel that they might know that He is God. A continued refrain throughout the book of Exodus is, and they will know that I am the Lord. God wants Himself to be known. And so He reveals Himself in awe, some power, in glorious displays of majesty, in sensory overload at Sinai. In fact, you may say that Sinai is a depiction of what we call God's transcendence. His complete otherness. God is not like you and me. And He's not a created being. He exists outside of the created order. And He's too big and too awesome for us to get our minds around. And He demonstrates that in His awesome display of power at Sinai. But the other truth of Christianity is that not only is God distinct from His creation, God is not part of this created order. He is independent of it, and He is worthy of praise because of that otherness. But yet, He has chosen to reveal Himself and not remain hidden, shrouded in mystery because of that distance. He has bridged the gulf, so to speak, and He has drawn close that we might know Him. And this we refer to as His eminence or His closeness. Now we could say that if Sinai represents God's transcendence, the tabernacle represents God's eminence. And you see it in verse 8. Make me a sanctuary or a tent that I might dwell or tabernacle with them. So the idea is that you have the God of the universe who is literally going to take up residence in the midst of His people. The idea is of closeness and relationship. We were created to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I think that biblical truth is aptly stated in the shorter catechism of our tradition. Glorify God enjoy him forever how do we do that what does it look like for a sinful being to glorify and enjoy the living God we saw last week in chapter 24 that the elders of Israel are called up the summons given is to worship but yet when they come up what do they do do they have a church service are they singing songs Is there a Bible reading? Well, that kind of stuff takes place earlier, but when they come up to worship, what do they do? They enjoy a covenant meal. They enjoy fellowship, basking in the presence of their Savior. So in chapter 24, worshiping God means enjoying His presence and His power. Enjoying that. Basking in it. Indeed, you might even say, communion with God. Communion with God is a key Christian concept. It's a key promise that we have as Christians that because of the Holy Spirit within us, we can have daily, indeed constant, communion with God. You are not cut off from Him. Indeed, you have access to the very throne of grace because of Jesus. But we're people And we forget all this. We forget it. What we remember are experiences. Experiences are what stand out in our minds. And a a memory attached to an emotion is a very powerful thing that psychologists have understood about the way our psyche works, which is why Sinai was intended to be so powerful. That's a vivid memory with very strong emotions, it was designed to instill a lasting impression. And we have these high mountaintop moments routinely throughout life. Maybe not constantly, but periodically they happen. You have a great women's event or a great summer retreat or a great church picnic, and you think, wow, this is great! And then you leave and you're wandering around in the mundane muck of life. Where's God now? Ugh. This is so lame how do we enjoy God as we go through the mundane of life when it's so hard to remember that he's there well in a very real sense the tabernacle is God's answer to that question or it's a first answer to that question you see God didn't need a building to reside in okay centuries later solomon gets it when he builds the temple which he he basically takes the the uh, dimensions of the tabernacle and doubles it when he makes the temple but he makes the temple and solomon's the first one to acknowledge no building can contain you so he got it the tabernacle's point is not that god is floating around looking for a place to rest and so he, he needs a house To sleep in. He needs a chair to sit on. No, that's not what the tabernacle's point is. God exists everywhere. He's spirit, right? His omnipresence is a key doctrine of Christianity. So if God didn't need the tabernacle, who did? Who did? We did. They did. We're the ones who need reminding that God's presence is with us it's important to remember then that the tabernacle is about reminding the people of God about God's presence and about providing a way where a sinful people can come and meet with and glorify and enjoy the living God without being consumed. It's important to remember that there's an inherently relational aspect to all of this, that this is not simply the place where a subjugated people must go to render homage to their overlord. God wants to abide and dwell with His people. Now, so important is the notion of communion with God that the tabernacle section of Exodus is about a third of the book. It is far longer than the book of Exodus's recounting of the Exodus. We were made to worship. And as we hear repeatedly, God saved us that we might be His people, that He might be our God, and that we might be friends. That He might live amongst us. And be the object not only of, of fearful praise, but of, but of heartfelt devotion and love. And so it's no, small, it, it, it's no surprise then that so much of this book is concerned with how that relationship can happen. The people of God are in a tent and they're wandering around. So God says, build me a tent so my house can be like their houses and I can be with them in their midst. And it doesn't talk about it right now, but later on we learn that the the tabernacle is the absolute center of camp. The, The tent of God is in the middle of the camp. And there are three tribes on the north, three tribes on the east, three tribes on the south, and three tribes on the west. So basically, no matter where you're at in the camp, you can look to the center and see and be reminded that God is with you in our midst. Literally. And that's an awesome thing. This is the only building ever that God provides blueprints for. Did you know that? There's no, God didn't provide blueprints for this building. He didn't even provide blueprints for the temple. Solomon just took the plan that his father had written down, which is basically a doubling of this. But this building right here, this tent, this mobile, temporary setup, designed for easy takedown facility, is the only building ever to receive God's complete blueprinted instructions. So it's no surprise then that it, we should think that it makes a point. There's no surprise that we should look beyond simply the the details as, as artistic expressions and expect to see that what God designs and the way he outlines the shape and the directions of things, they all are designed to make a point. So as you read chapters 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, and 31, he's providing a blueprint and you can basically argue, or not argue, but but outline the concept of the tabernacle in terms of its sacred space, its sacred servants, and its sacred schedule. And that's basically the flow of this pattern. The blueprint concludes in chapter 31 with a very strongly worded reminder about the importance of the Sabbath and of keeping the Sabbath because being with God means acknowledging His Lordship and His sovereignty over your schedule. And so everything is centered around dwelling with the people and being their God amongst them. Now, the book of Hebrews, chapters 8 and 9, call out this section of Scripture. And they remind us that what Moses here institutes is is a copy and a shadow of heavenly realities. That doesn't mean that up in heaven there's a holy of holies and a tent with a courtyard. It doesn't mean that, that there's literally a tent in heaven. What it means is that the design of the tabernacle corresponds in a shadow type form to spiritual realities that exist and find their ultimate expression in heaven. But what's the tabernacle all about? We learn in John 1.14 that Jesus, the Word of God, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. And biblical scholars and theologians have rightly pointed out that when it says the Word became flesh and He dwelt among us, that that Word is the exact Word, the specific Word for the tabernacle. So, it is an accurate translation to say the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Now, what's happening in John is not some clever attempt to just remind the people of their national heritage, it's it's not a tip of the hat to a millennia old religious artifact. He's tying in thematically that what the tabernacle did in terms of God taking up residence among the people, Christ Himself does in a more complete and perfect manner by literally taking up residence among us, by becoming one of us. And this points us to a reality that what happens here in Exodus 25-31 through with the institution of the tabernacle is the Israelites, the early Hebrews, are privy to what is going on in God's cosmic scheme in the covenant of redemption to bring all things together in Christ. They get a glimpse of it. You see, to understand the tabernacle, you got to go beyond ancient Near Eastern customs. Right? You've got to go beyond the fact that they were a wandering nomadic people group who needed a building that could be taken down easily. You've got to go beyond all that. You have to go all the way back to Eden. The Garden of Eden. When God created the garden and put the first man and the first woman in that garden, He was in unbroken communion with His creation. And he would come and walk with them and talk with them in the cool of the day. And Adam and Eve served as deputies in a sense, as, as regent king priests, if you want to call it that. They were stewards over God's creation. In, X, in Genesis 2.15, when it says that God gives Adam the command to, to work and to keep the garden, That Hebrew phrase that's translated to work and to keep is only ever repeated in regards to the work of the priests in Numbers. So there's an inherently mediatorial role that Adam has as he's mediating God's presence with the creation. But paradise was lost. We sinned in our first father. We sinned, and relationship has been broken. And so what did God do in response? He drives the man and the woman out. And He cuts off access to the tree of life. Remember that? And what does He place in the way? An angel with a flaming sword to prevent access from being restored. But yet... He had made a promise to one day undo the work of the serpent. And so, what God has been doing throughout all of Exodus and making himself known, and then you see it here in the tabernacle, is making a way for fellowship and communion with Him to be restored. It is no small detail that the courtyard has an open door, I mean, there is no door on the courtyard, it's open. And which direction does it face? East. No matter where they wander, it always is to face east. That's not because they were sun worshipers. They're not facing Mecca. (laughs) Okay? God banishes Adam and Eve. And where does He send them? East of Eden. There's a reason John Steinbeck named his author that, his book that, about the estrangement of, of sin and, 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 and the generational sins and the need to break that cycle and recreation. But he refers to east of Eden because that's where Adam and Eve are banished. When Cain is driven out from the presence of the Lord, where is he banished? To the east. You see, throughout all of biblical literature, the motif, the place of judgment, of estrangement from God is to the east. So, if God has his house and he wants to receive someone who's from the east, his door must then face the east. And that's a powerful image. Back in Genesis 3, you see the man and the woman banished and they're pushed to the east. And he places a flaming sword in the hand of an angel to bar access and now what do we see the lord has established his home on earth facing the east making a theological statement and what do people find as they come from the east they find an open door fellowship is being restored and then of course fast forwarding we see that the work of christ is to be the second adam In Romans chapter 5, we see that everything that Adam was meant to be and meant to do, he failed at. And Jesus has done it right. So Jesus is the harbinger of a new humanity created in holiness. And through Jesus, we who are in him have access to the throne. And ultimately what happens when we see the new heavenly Jerusalem in Revelation it's a city it has 12 gates and we know that a city with its walls with its gates are defensive and they're meant to be closed for protection but what do we learn about its gates what do we learn they never close God welcomes and relationship is established what was in the center of the garden the tree of life scholars are pretty much unanimous That this candelabra that gets created in the holy place, right in front of the the Most Holies, the Holy of Holies, is a depiction of a tree in full bloom. It is a representation of the tree of life that exists in the presence of God. And what do we learn in Revelation exists right dab smack in the middle of the city? There's a river flowing from the throne. And right there beside that river is the tree of life. You see, Eden was lost. Fellowship was broken. And the whole biblical narrative is about regaining Eden. Paradise was lost and paradise is found. God is on a mission. And it's a singular mission throughout history. At the start of Sunday school, I and Kay spoke and asked a few questions and I talked about how I had come from a tradition uh, that was different than covenantal theology. And that tradition overlooks things like this and doesn't see that there's a continuous plan and arc of God's purpose in the world. But that's the beauty of, of the Bible. In Scripture, you see that God's plan from eternity past has been singular. We lost it. We messed it up. But in Jesus, everything is being made new. So the doors are open. The tabernacle was erected to be a temporary reminder to the people that God wasn't shutting out sinners. That you can have communion with God. And yes, it took the place, it took place in the context of type and shadow. So the first thing you would see when you came in the door of that tabernacle tent would be a big old bronze altar, which was basically a glorified grill. I mean, if you read the description, it's a big grill. And the top grate was where you would cook the meat. Okay? I would love a grill like that. It's like five feet by five feet. It's massive. Reminding that sins must be paid for, but there's still, there's a way. relationship and communion. That's the goal. Not the the terrified, fearful petitions of a subjugated people. He wants the embrace of of a grateful son and a grateful daughter. That we were wandering. And He found us. And the way was made. This is the illusion that Jesus gives in John 10 when He speaks of other sheep. There's other sheep out there. And the illusion is that the imagery is that they're wandering lost. Sheep are out there wandering lost on the hillside. And they'll hear my voice. And they'll come. That all the sheep may be one flock. Because there's one people of God. A new humanity. And it's composed of people who are white and black and red and yellow. It's made of people who speak English and German, and Dutch, and French, and Chinese, and and, and, and Arabic, and whatever. We're a new humanity in Christ. Formerly lost, but now we're found. And God saved you for communion, so delight in His presence. Now there's a lot going on in these chapters, and so next week I'm going to, having looked at kind of the big picture concept of it, I want to break it down a little bit more about what does the tabernacle say practically about how we enjoy the communion we should have with God. There's actually some spiritual life tips, if you want to call it, in this passage about communion with God. But I knew I was the elder of the day, and I knew that whenever I'm elder of the day, I go long, and I knew that it would be after, so I split it into multiple messages, so I'll, th- I'll accept your thanks later. <laughs> so let's go ahead and close. But come back next week because I want you to see what the tabernacle has to say about practical communion with God. All right? Let's pray.